Well, friends, it's neat to be back with you. We uh, are sorry for the inconvenience and the juggling and schedules and all that has, uh, has been required, but and certainly we'll continue to pray for Nathan and Sandy's soon return. And uh, bless your hearts, <laughs> you'll pray a lot more after some of these messages, I think. Anyway, let's, uh, let's look at Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. When you look at the 22nd chapter of Luke, we're looking at the last moments in the life of Christ just before His execution on the cross. And those last few uh, intimate moments and conversations that he had with those who had spent uh, so much time with him, his disciples. Now, um, early in chapter, maybe just put this all in context, uh, earlier in chapter 22, before we're going to read, the Lord has just instituted the Last Supper, as, as we call it, or the Lord's Supper. And he's just given this uh, very graphic and memorable picture of his uh, death involving the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And uh, this picture that will remain and and perpetually teach uh, his followers of what that, uh, that meant for them. But in verse 24, we see that a dispute uh, had arisen. And I'd like to begin reading with verse 24, although that's not the the main focus today. But I do think it's important to set um, uh, what we have to say in context. So let's uh, begin with Luke 22, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles... Lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves." And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied me, denied three times that you know me. And let's stop there and May the Lord who caused these words to be written so many years ago also give us light and encouragement in our path. Well, I want to focus mostly on those words directed to Simon in verse, uh, beginning with verse 31. But just so you understand what's going on here, uh, right after, right after this very intimate time of learning from the Lord through His Last Supper. What comes into the minds of the disciples? A fight. Uh, 
a dispute. Who's going to be the highest on the totem pole? And at other times I've developed this a little more uh, than we will today. But I do believe that the assaults of the enemy uh, do not come just at accidental or randomly picked moments. I believe they come at crucial moments. And that there is some design and, and purpose behind the enemy's timing of these kinds of temptations and, uh, and, and disputes. Now, uh, we look, uh, you can look at other times, in fact. This is at least the third time that we have recorded in which the disciples get into a, a big, long harangue about who's going to be the most important, who's going to have the most authority and prestige and, and power. Okay, And you'll notice they're all bunched right at the end of the life of Christ on earth, right at that time between the Mount of Transfiguration and the cross, right at that time when the disciples should be focused upon uh, those particular things and, and this uh, climax of the redemptive work of God, and that is uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But in verse 31, what, what we see is, is a very uh, interesting thing, and maybe the best way to describe it is, is the Lord just kind of opens the curtains, okay, or, 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 or opens the, uh, removes this barrier so that we can see what's going on behind the scenes, see some reality that otherwise we can't see with our eyes. Okay, And I think that the context here is important because he's going to show what things are going on in the lives of his disciples that, that are beneath the, the, the things like this dispute over who's going to be most important. So, you know, having just heard this and having sorted out and talked about a, a servant attitude and, and, and so forth among the disciples, uh, Jesus is going to say, let me show you something, guys. Look what's going on that accounts for this kind of thing and be sensitive to it in the rest of your lives. All right? So let's begin to, to look at this. Uh, by the way, this isn't a, an unusual thing, perhaps. There are other times when uh, the Lord did the same thing in His teaching. For instance, uh, I think of uh, Luke chapter 10, and the occasion there is when the 70 have been dispatched on a, a kind of a short-term mission project, and they come back, and there's great rejoicing. Look at all this that happened, and, and so on. And Jesus sort of says, here, let me show you something. And he opens those curtains again, and uh, Luke 10:17, he says, I saw Satan falling like, like, like lightning from heaven. So he kind of explains what's going on behind the scene to account for the things that they can see uh, happening in their lives. Uh, you all are, uh, some of the adults at least, are studying the book of Revelation. And a great deal of that is just one, uh, one of these after another. The Lord sort of opens those curtains and says, let me show you, you know, how to explain the things going on on the earth and in your lives. But now look at this one here back in Luke 22. And you'll notice it starts in a, in a kind of an odd way. And, and I believe that the, that the Lord, in three different ways, okay, sort of highlights what he's about to say. That is, just on, on the lead-in, he says things in such a way that, that it'll get the attention of the disciples. Of course, they should have been sitting up and listening to everything. But perhaps uh, in, in, in a little extra way, they kind of set up and thought, boy, something important may be coming here. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 31, the name Simon. Simon. Why is that important, or in this case, unusual? Well, uh, at this time, 
uh, we would be used to hearing a different name, right? And who's this? Yeah, Peter. Right. Most mostly, uh, we we hear the, the word or the the name Peter that was given to to him by Jesus himself sometime uh, well earlier than this. But Jesus goes back to his given name Simon and begins to direct some comments uh, at him. So he doesn't use the name Peter, which means rock. It is interesting he comes back to Peter in verse 34 when he says, I tell you, Peter, and it's maybe a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, you're going to deny me three times. So he kind of comes back to the word that means rock, you know, denoting strength and stability and all this. It says, look what you're going to do. But, but at this point, it's Simon. So he goes back perhaps to remind uh, Simon himself and the other disciples of the inadequacy and the weakness uh, that's so evident in someone's life before they come to Christ and apart from the grace of Christ. And you notice also he repeats the name, Simon, Simon. And this is a very uh, common kind of a, uh, a way of speaking for emphasis, for getting attention. All right? And... Um, there are other places in the scriptures where we see this. For instance, Martha, Martha. You remember that? In um, Luke chapter 10 also, before some comments, Jesus begins in that way. And there's also a, a negative uh, way in which uh, we see this used. In Matthew chapter 7, there'll be many who say in that day, Lord, Lord. Didn't we, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know, and they bring out their resumes and all their accomplishments and all, but he still will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So uh, a way of emphasis then, uh, speaking to someone and repeating their name before the, the, the message. And then the word that we often just kind of skim over, we hear it so much, behold. Behold. And it's kind of a way of saying, hey, sit up and listen and pay attention to what I'm going to say. But also, it, it, could, all, it could have the, the effect of, uh, in fact, Jesus might have even gestured and said, Behold. In other words, look, guys, what you're doing and what you're saying. You're at each other's throats. And, and going at each other about who is going to be most important. And, and he's, he's just sort of says, look at yourself. All right? Look, look what's going on here. So Simon, Simon... Behold, and here's what he has to say then. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now let's talk about uh, all of this a little bit at a time. First of all, Satan. Satan. Not just a force. Not just an influence. Not just what people have come to call things they don't like and what they consider evil and, and, and all of that but actually a personage, actually a being, the enemy of the Lord and of His people, the one who opposes everything in the Lord's purposes and, 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 uh, uh, and those designs that He has for His people. Satan, the deceiver, the one who carries out, uh, the, the, his primary tool of carrying out his purposes is deception, and Satan, the destroyer, the one whose goal of all of he, that he does and all of that deception is destroying uh, the, the work of God in our lives. Satan, the father of lies, the adversary, the one who in Revelation is called the accuser of the brethren. Okay, brethren, those who, who know the Lord, who come to know Christ. 
And he just keeps coming at them and accusing them and saying, you're not good enough. Maybe you haven't done it right. Maybe, uh, maybe things you've done are a little bit beyond the pale of the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that's available through Him. You know, we, we hear quite a, a lot of, um, of statements like that from folks that we have talked with in whose past uh, there is an abortion. And they think, you know, boy, the Lord can forgive a lot of things, but not what I've done. And, of course, it's a great comfort to, to minister to them and say, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. But there's the effect of the, uh, the temptations and the attempt to undermine the security of the believer, the accuser of the brethren. And one of the things we see Satan has done is he has demanded, and we're not told when this happened, you know, but he, he has demanded permission to sift the believers. And, you know, when you, when you read this passage, you, you have to think about the passage in Job. Uh, early in the book there, we see Satan coming into the presence of God. And again, we're not told just when or, you know, what, all, all the questions aren't answered there. It's kind of... Uh, tantalizing, and if you have questions about that, you need to ask Nathan <laughs> when he gets back. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, but uh, Satan comes in, of course, again accusing Job of just following the Lord and just trusting Him and just serving Him because the Lord dangles all these nice little things before Him, and, and His uh, His commitment to the Lord is entirely self-serving and 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 selfish motivated. But the Lord gives permission then for Satan to bring temptations. And he puts limits there. And I think we see very, very clearly uh, that the, the power uh, and the reach of Satan is circumscribed by the sovereign purposes of God. There is a limit. It's not just this uh, carte blanche, you know, do anything he wants and, and no limits at all, no control uh, of any kind. But uh, we do see that, there, that, that his power is circumscribed by the purposes of God. Now here he says he's demanded permission to sift uh, like wheat. Now I'm not um, not terrible familiar with this. Maybe other folks are, but my understanding from uh, reading about those times and all was uh, in, in sifting wheat. What they'd want to do is get the get the nice kernels, you know, that uh, that had been harvested, and they would want to separate the the little husks on the outside of the kernels from the good stuff inside. Now, the husk was just kind of useless, you know, it wasn't any good for eating, and they wanted to get it away from the stuff that was good, uh, for, you know, turning into flour and, and, and all the rest. So what they would do is they could, you know, put it in a, in a kind of a box, you know, with sort of a screen bottom and shake the daylights out of that, and the little husk would fall out. Or, on a larger scale, they'd get this, this kind of a, a building that was open on, on, on two opposite sides. In other words, a, a nice breeze could blow, you know, clean through the thing, one side to the other, you know, under, under the shelter. And they get all the wheat in there and just uh, get uh, shovels or forks full and just throw it up into the air. And as it would fall, the wind would blow through and blow the chaff on out the building and the nice uh, kernels they wanted to keep would just fall down and, and they'd be uh, separated. Uh, e either way... And the idea here is, is uh, when the enemy wants to sift, what he's wanting to do is to separate uh, some from the others. Now, <clears throat> whom does he want to separate? Or whom does he want to sift? Jesus says he's demanded permission to sift you. 
Now, it may not be real clear in our English, but when you look back in, in the original language, what you see is the you, there is a plural you. And it's too bad our translators weren't good southerners, because they should have translated it what? Y'all, right? Satan has, permission, has demanded permission to sift you guys, disciples. All right, so he's talking to the group here. He, 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 he pinpoints Simon, okay? So he's looking, you know, mo- mostly at him. As he does this, he says something that has reference to the rest of the disciples. So he's going to demand permission to sift you all. And what we see here is that Satan is going to bring circumstances and temptations, sometimes very difficult things, but he's going to bring them to bear in the lives of the followers, and it's going to be an effort to cull them out, not not separate them from Christ. No one can do that. But I would suggest it's rather uh, to render them ineffective and to hinder fruitfulness and perhaps to separate them from the fellowship of believers that they need for the cultivation of that fruit uh, by its ministry in their lives. So, in this context, what we see is the disciples at each other's throats. Things have kind of boiled over and there's this pride and personal ambition that is showing itself in this kind of strife. Um, And, uh, you know, this is, and what we're seeing here is Jesus says this is the enemy's effort to distract and to disrupt right at a crucial point, right? You know, right at the time of, of this decisive showdown with Satan and his great weapon that is the grave. And here's this temptation then and this, these circumstances that would separate the disciples from Christ himself. And of course, what's going to happen then just after the death and resurrection is here are going to be key people in the, in the, uh, the bringing of the gospel to the nations. And can you see, can you see the advantage of the enemy to bring this kind of temptation now? to separate them from each other. So the whole enterprise would end up just collapsing of its own weight with men who couldn't stand to get along with each other, uh, you know, worrying about who was going to be most important. Well, the sifting then is going on there in the upper room. And what about now? Does this kind of sifting take place nowadays? You ever noticed it in your life? Well, I think many of us certainly can look back and see times when that has been an effort of the enemy. You know, just in the temptations and the, the, the silence and quietness of our own hearts or those circumstances that have come in our lives or our families or in a church or whatever. Now, um, as with this case, it will always have something to do with pride. Always has something to do with our pride. And let me just march out a few suggestions here. Boy, we could talk all day about the ways the enemy tries to sift in our lives. I believe that many times it has to do with relationships. The enemy is going to use people in our lives uh, very, very often. And it can be opposite sex can be same sex can be business partnerships whatever the case anything anyone that uh, tends to dull our sensitivity to the Lord or weaken our conscience 
and uh, lead us into compromise, a willingness to fudge for the sake of getting along with someone else. Or it could be just the security and the personal peace that supposedly come from affluence. We're talking about materialism, finding our security in the accumulation of things. Or it could be just an independent spirit that the enemy would use to kind of sift sift us away and render us ineffective. Uh, an independent spirit. Now, that's good when it comes to saying no to bad peer pressure. You know, there are, needs to be some more of that kind of independence. The problem we see is there isn't enough of that kind, and there's plenty. In fact, too much of the other kind of independence, and that is for folks in the body of Christ to say, I don't need to listen to anybody else. I don't need to pay attention to anybody else. I don't need anyone's help. I will do it my way. I'll not have any kind of accountability uh, within the body of Christ. I'm told, uh, as something of a newcomer sort of to the area, that that's a very popular way of thinking in this region, in the Appalachian area. I'm told by the people that have lived here. Uh, for many, many years. And whether that's the case, I don't know, but uh, it certainly has something to do with being fallen and sinful anywhere. But um, perhaps so in this area. I don't know. But then uh, perhaps there is just a complacence, just an apathy. You know, maybe not tied to other big events in our lives, but just kind of a slow gradual drifting into an indifference and just a laziness. Perhaps that's what the Lord, the, the enemy is using in an effort to sift in our lives. And I believe, folks, that there's a great deal of this as well. I think many folks in the churches of our country uh, can be characterized by this. There's just a, a, a blindness. Uh, that, that, well, let me put it this way. I think that, that, our whole, that the church in, in this country is facing great peril and danger. And part of the reason is there's so many folks that don't see any peril or danger whatsoever. Because it's the assault that we see against values and the uh, and family lives. Well, let's get to the good news real quickly. Verse 32, Jesus says, But I have prayed. I have prayed for you. Well, before we go any farther, I think one point we can make here is if Jesus prayed in, in, in an effort to combat this kind of sifting going on in the lives of His disciples, then we ought to do the same thing. We can use the same tool He used. We can use the same mechanism to pray about what's going on in our lives and in our friends. But I have prayed for you. In contrast to this one working against you, this one who's demanded permission to sift in your lives, Jesus says, I, on the other hand, have prayed for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? Okay? And greater is He who is in you than he that is in the world. John says in, uh, in 1 John uh, 4. And what we see here is if, it, if there's any kind of faithfulness and fruitfulness and lasting kind of impact in our lives, it'll be because of the faithfulness of Christ first in our own lives. 
And I think we picture that in Revelation when we see the saints gathered around the throne, casting their crowns before Him at His feet. I think it's a way of recognizing that any kind of good, any kind of virtue, any kind of, of, of fruitfulness that might be evident throughout the years of our lives of walking with Him will be there only because of the goodness of Christ and His work in our lives. And we acknowledge that then by presenting these crowns back uh, before Him. Now... Jesus had prayed for His disciples other times too. For instance, John 17, the great high priestly intercessory prayer. And you notice there it wasn't just for those disciples gathered with Him, but for all those who would hear the gospel through them. And that includes indirectly us. The Lord praying for all who would come uh, to know Him at that point. And we also then and see uh, Hebrews 7.25 that Jesus always lives to make intercession for His own. So he, he continues then through His Spirit to bring growth and strength and stability and maturity in our lives by His intercessory uh, work. Now, uh, another very interesting thing here before we, we wind up. Verse 32, Jesus says, I have prayed for you. And it may not be evident in our English, but the you there is back to singular. Okay, now get the picture here. Jesus begins by focusing on Peter. Simon, Simon. Okay, behold and, and the rest of it. And he says, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you disciples, but I have prayed particularly for you. For Simon. And what do we make of this? Well, again, I, I, it could be that Simon is in sort of a representative role. That is, Jesus prayed for all of them, but he's focusing here on Simon as sort of representative. But I think it's, it may be a little more than that. What I believe Jesus is saying here is this. Okay, talking about Simon. This is, this is a man who, who lived with his foot in his mouth. The man who time after time spoke without thinking. Time after time made an idiot of himself by blurting things out. Okay? This man who is impulsive. Okay? This, this man that just, you know, just is so much out of control in case after case uh, through his time with Jesus. And here's Jesus saying to this man, I have prayed particularly for you. And the implication is that uh, when, when Satan brings that sifting to bear in the lives of all those disciples gathered in that room, the one most likely to fall out would be Him. And what I think we see here is the Lord picks out the one, and, and if I may put it in a very, maybe kind of a crude way, the one who had the most work to be done on Him. And the Lord's going to show through, of all those men, Peter, what His grace can do to bring changes in somebody's life. Okay? You notice he says, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And the word here is to utterly or completely or totally fail. Were there lapses? Yes. In fact, within just hours, right? Denies knowing the Lord three times. And yet, the Lord prays that his faith would not utterly, totally be undermined. And he would apostatize. Uh, but uh, rather, he says, and you, when you, when once you have turned again, implying a coming to repentance, right? 
He says, strengthen your brothers. He has a goal and he has a mission. He has a job, even for Peter. And he's praying for him that he would be enabled to do that. And you know, when we open our Bibles now and read First and Second Peter, that's what, what is happening to us is we're being strengthened, okay, by the things that Peter wrote. And it's a partial fulfillment then of what Jesus spoke of right here. And you know, it may be that some of us uh, look back in our lives and say, man, the Lord has a lot to do. Maybe there's a lot of baggage. Maybe there are a lot of things that are very embarrassing in our past. And it may have to do with immorality or promiscuity. It may have to do with just, just bitterness and anger. It may have to do with just plain old complacence. Maybe growing up in a church and just getting an, enough you know, in, impact of Christianity to, to kind of uh, immunize us against any re- real commitment uh, to the Lord. Whatever the case, maybe there's a lot of work to be done yet in our lives to bring that stability and, and strength and maturity. And I think that it would be very encouraging to us to see if the Lord can do that with Peter. Of all those disciples, He can do it for us as well. We need to apply ourselves and ask Him uh, to continue that gracious work in our lives. It's very encouraging, I think, to read a little poem that uh, some of you all may have heard before. I think it puts it all very, very well. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin." But he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good folks, he cried. Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar. Now two, only two. Two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no. From the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up all the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased, and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow. A thousand dollars. And who'll make it two? Two thousand. Who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, We do not quite understand. What changed its worth? The man replied, The touch of the Master's hand. Many a man with his life out of tune and battered and torn with sin, he's auctioned cheap, to a thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin, a mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, going twice, going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the encouragement of the passage here. 
thank you for your work in the life of Peter and that example. In one who, yes, required much work. And yet you strengthen him, you equipped him, you use him to strengthen others and ourselves. Oh, Father, we thank you for the intercessory work that you showed in praying for him and for us. We ask you to make us very sensitive and open our eyes to those ways our enemies now would yet want to sift us out, to render us ineffective, to separate us from that commitment with others to you. Oh, Father, we ask you to guide us to, uh, uh, to work in our lives that we may not be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.